This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hey, welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And we are here every Thursday from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific, and we are replayed throughout the week. And of course, Cheryl, as you know best, you can find us on, on the app, on, on the, the SiriusXM app, app on demand. Whenever you want us. That's right. Walk down the street listening to Sirius. Just bebop around listening to <laughs> Dollars and Change, learning how business and finance can actually be a, uh, a force for good in the world. And it's increasingly show, demonstrating multiple ways to make that happen. Exactly. You can always listen to us while you're bebopping down the street or in your car or really wherever on demand. Well, in fact, it was interesting. I was uh, taking an Uber into work today and was talking to the Uber driver about our our work, and he was just quite amazed by some of the things that businesses were doing. So, you know, there's there's ways to share this with everyone. Absolutely. And, of course, we have a great show in store for you today. Our guest who will join us in just a moment is Ann Tucker, a friend of Wharton and the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. Uh, she's the professor of law and faculty director of the Legal Analytics and Innovation Initiative at Georgia State University College of Law. Um, we actually collaborate with Anne on our impact investing, private equity, and venture capital research. Um, she is our legal scholar that we go to with questions, and she's the one leading the charge on doing qualitative document coding and then doing econometrics, which I think she'll talk about today, <laughs> but we won't bore you with in great detail um, too much. But we are delighted to have Anne. Welcome to the show, Anne. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. We're just thrilled delighted. to have you. And um, I always have to say that Anne is always articulate at the top of her game. She's poised. She's fabulous. I Pressure's love working on. with Anne. Pressure's on. I was going to say, just setting that bar real low for me. Thanks. <laughs> real low. Well, you know, in, you know, I just, I'm setting great expectations for you, Anne. I appreciate that. If only somebody had written a report called Great Expectations about impact investing. Weird. I mean, I wonder if you could Google Wharton and Great Expectations and, and get something. See what would no, come up. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, folks. That's a report we did uh, a few years ago on impact investing, private equity, and venture capital. But we're we're honing in on today on a specific part of impact investing, private equity, and venture capital. So, and we're going to talk a little bit about opportunity zones, which was passed as part of the tax reform legislation at the very end of 2017. And I'm going to pause there before we get deep into it, but I wanted just to prime our listeners on what we're going to be talking about with you today. And we're specifically going to bring in a legal perspective because really, I would say the quote unquote impact investing industry is just wringing its hands thinking like, Oh my gosh, the promise of opportunity zones. We're investing in distressed or economically distressed communities, disenfranchised communities. Is it going to have the impact we hope to have? And one of the things that we look at with you is can you codify social impact or environmental impact terms into contracts? And that's something that we've been looking at specifically with you, and you've been leading the charge. So that's the primer for listeners. But first, I want to get to Anne, like, who the heck are you? We know that you're at Georgia State University. That's all I know. So who am I? Um, well, I'm primarily a corporate law scholar who looks at um, why do people put their money together? Why do they give it to somebody else? And what do they hope to get out of that? Um, and the traditional answer has always been to raise money. Passive investment's been a great tool to not only fuel uh, the development of business, but it's been a great way to generate 
personal private wealth, and it's been a great tool. Um, and those are still questions that I'm interested in. How do funds work, and and how can we structure them fairly, particularly if we think about retirement and education savings? But Recently, there's been an interesting addition to that equation where we say, what do people hope to get out of pooling their money and giving it to somebody else? And now it's not just the it's not just an engine to generate private wealth. It's also an engine to generate social and economic change for others. And thinking about the magnitude of like the sustainable development goals and the funding gaps, thinking about channeling private investment dollars to these goals in a way that serves the financial and the social goals of the investors is a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting puzzle. And it's, it's, from my perspective, I'm, I'm interested in thinking about how do we structure funds so that they can do that and do it well and do it transparently. And then also how, what do investors need? What assurances, what regulation, what transparency do investors need so that they have the safeguards to put their money to that end? So that's sort of my um, that's sort of my take on why I'm interested in some of these questions. And along the way, I've looked at both traditional investment funds as well as social entrepreneurship and impact investing. But Anne, if we listen to Uncle Milty, I thought the social responsibility <laughs> of business was to make profit for its shareholders, and legal and regulatory guidance has followed suit. Right. And so that idea, Uncle Melty, I mean, such a such a card at the holiday gatherings. Um, <laughs> he uh, right. The idea is that I need to just make as much money as I possibly can for myself. And then whatever extra money that I have, I'll then give to charities and we'll let charities do this. And so it's this very um, bifurcated view of how of how systems and society should work. The, the difficulty, though, and I think what we've seen is that uh, when businesses single-mindedly pursue profit at the expense of all else, it incentivizes externalities, externalities which have real dollar costs and externalities that must be paid for by somebody else. And um, I think we've also seen that the externalities aren't equally born. So problems of environmental contamination, problems of social injustice, problems of inequity disproportionately fall on certain groups. And so that setup um, proposed by Uncle Milty, it places a big invisible tax on the people least likely and able to, to pay that tax. And so it's essentially asking a group of people to subsidize private wealth. So um, that would be my general, very, very timid pushback on that. Um, so my, my view of asking something a little bit different of at least some businesses is a view towards reducing those externalities. And if, if that's the framework, the idea is that it increases the net pool of revenues that can be shared um, by a greater number of people and also in a more equitable fashion. And increasingly we're seeing um, consumers, employees, et cetera, really um, valuing companies who are willing to take that extra step. And so in theory, this, this means that they, they're getting extra customers and they're far more loyal. Sure. I mean, I think um, so when we talk about uh, if we talk about just expanding the view of like what are things that generate value and what's the what's the goal of a company, um, we start to 
like once we take something out of just the um, single bottom line, uh, we can get a much more expansive view. So I mentioned externalities. Like if we don't care about pollution, we're asking somebody else to pay for those consequences. But another way of expanding value is saying what do the customers get out of um, the product or the service or what do the employees get um, as in addition to salary, but what benefits do they get, um, either the social-emotional benefits or what a tangible personal benefits do they get from working at individual companies. So the concept of value is something much greater than um, just a single mm-hmm. dollar amount. And as, as crazy as it sounds, um, the, this idea of expanded value is um, something that even the most traditional of corporate law recognizes. So Delaware merger law recognizes this idea that value is not just a single number, but it encompasses a host of things, including value to these intangible values to shareholders, um, values to customers, to employees. So I think that even though it may sound antithetical, there are there are notions of the law that already um, adopt and act on the um, an expanded view of value. So, okay, you've touched on a couple of things, and I just want to continue to break it down because I think you're doing a really great job. So um, I guess help us better understand why a legal framework is important for these considerations. When I when I talked about Milton Friedman, Uncle Milty, that was a uh, that was something in an op-ed in the New York Times. Right. It was not a legal opinion. <clears throat> it was not even an academic paper at the time. It was an op-ed. But it has become gospel uh, in some senses. And so how do you think about this, these issues from a legal perspective on one hand, you know, which can, I think, also translate into why you're interested in researching in this area? And then I just want to just briefly touch on, too, you mentioned Delaware merger law. Why is Delaware important for this type of conversation? Okay, sure. So let's take them one at a time. So one, let me just add one other discount to the Milton Friedman argument, and that is not a lawyer coming at it from um, coming at it from like a finance econ perspective here. So looking at it just on incentives, not on a legal framework. Um, so uh, Delaware is important in the conversation um, because it is the major headquarters of most publicly traded U.S. companies. And so companies may operate all over the country, um, but many of them have their corporate home. Uh, in Delaware, and because of uh, because of the, how the law works, the laws of the state of your incorporation govern the internal affairs of that corporation. And so, if I am incorporated in Delaware but operate in California, Delaware state law governs what happens with the shareholders and the fiduciary duties imposed upon directors and the like. So, Delaware um, has this outsized role in corporate law uh, because of its reach. And it is, in fact, um, not only for the companies that are incorporated in Delaware, lots of states then look to Delaware decisions to resolve questions of their own state corporate law because Delaware is such an intellectual leader in the the area and because they get so many big cases. Okay, so that's why we care about Delaware. (laughs) Helpful. Um, okay. Very helpful. Yes. Just, just a quick little refresher for those folks who haven't finished uh, a year or two of law school. Uh, okay. Check so then, me. <laughs> right. So then why is it like, why do the legal rules matter? Um, so I think it's like anytime you've ever 
think about any time you've ever tried to play a new board game or a new card game. The first question you always ask is, what are the rules? Um, right? Because you want to know how to play your hand. And the rules, that's, the rules set up the framework, and the rules define your strategic options. So if you know the rules, you know how to avoid losing, and you have a much better chance at winning. And so in many ways, when we think about what's the law, the law, are, the, the law sets the rules. And there are obvious rules like don't kill somebody. Um, don't hurt children. These are clear rules in a criminal context. But in corporate law, the rules are much more like rules to a board game or a card game. They tell you the moves you can and cannot make, but they don't give you a playbook for what to do. So knowing the rules is even more important because it gives you the strategic options. So the law has a seat at the table here because the framework, what are the rules, what actions are permissive, which ones are prohibited, tells you, like, once you figure that out and map it out, that tells you your set of options. What can I do? And within those set of options, you begin making strategic choices. So the question around, like, why are lawyers even worried about some of these uh, questions about social entrepreneurship and impact investing, it's that the rules of the game determine the moves available. Um, and there's, there are several sets of legal rules that are implicated when we start talking about social entrepreneurship and when we start talking about impact investing. Um, and so that's, that's sort of the law's seat at the table here. Well, and I think that um, one of the things that we'll want to dive into a little bit more is that for many times you think about rules as, you know, you're saying they're strategic, but a lot of times they feel very restrictive. They Punitive. Tell me, yeah, they tell me what I can't do when, right. you know, I've found a really creative way to to cheat and the rules say I can't, right? So how do we think about how, – how do you transition to thinking about rules as being part of the strategy, part of creating opportunities rather than just being restrictive for companies who don't mind pushing their externalities off on anybody else? Yeah. Oh, that's such an interesting question. And it really speaks to the different perspectives, right? Because as a primarily a transactional or corporate lawyer, I think of the laws as about strategy. So hmm. I like that question just re- just revealed something <laughs> about my own thinking to me in that. So thank you for that bit of insight. Um, all right. So in many ways, yes, the law sets the boundaries, um, sort of the absolute, you can't do this. Um, but those, that just tells us the outer boundaries. It's sort of like if you were to think about a baseball diamond, think about the fence at the edge of the field. But if you didn't know anything else about what's going on on the inside, you really want to know how to play baseball. Right. And um, I think for me, the clear prohibitions when the law says do not do this, those are easy. Um, that's easy to interpret. That's easy to avoid. Um, and that's like that's the that stuff's clear. What's much more interesting is like the permissives and the maze and thinking about what are our suite of options, or more importantly, how do you create a process that stays within those boundaries? So I, um, from my perspective, primarily again coming from a transactional practice where it was to help implement. Like, what are your strategic goals? What are, like, what's the transaction mm. that you want to accomplish? How can we implement that in line with your vision, consistent with this legal framework? Um, and so I see it very much as a strategic choice. And similarly, um, I'll just 
subtly shift this back a little bit towards impact investing, and then you can steer me away if you want. Um, but that's one of the things that we were interested in with the current contract term project with Wharton Social Impact Initiative, and that's to see how are people, um, how are people navigating this new area? How are they inserting impact into their contracts? Um, so one last thing that I'll say, and that is, um, I am, in the law, we think about public law and private law. So public law is when Congress acts or when your state legislature acts, and when we get clear mandates, like Sarbanes-Oxley is a set of public laws, the requirements for funds to register with the Securities and Exchange Commission, that's public law that imposes upon everybody. Um, there are additional sources of at least air quote law, um, and that's in the form of private agreements. Mm. So when we think about this amazing thing that we allow people to do, which is if you and I promise to do something and we write it down and we sign it and we exchange something in value for each other, I can take that promise that's otherwise just between you and me, and I can take it to a court, and I can, I can have a court make you do that thing. And so we have forms of private law where just an individual otherwise private act becomes something that's enforceable through the courts. Um, and so contracts, private agreements, investment agreements, these once these contracts are entered into, they are a form of private law. And so when we think about what's the role of the law, it's not just um, legislatures, uh, sitting in uh, in halls like voting on bills and making these big public laws. It's also individual acts of creativity that get documented and recorded in contracts. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, with Nick Ashburn and Cheryl Coleman. We're currently speaking with Ann Tucker, a professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law. And, Anne, I want to pick up on a couple of things. One, I promised our listeners we were also going to talk about opportunity zones, and I promised you we're going to talk about contracts with benefits, a recent <laughs> so let's do it. paper that you're working on. So, But I think we've laid some really, really important groundwork here uh, so far. So if you think about public law, what you were just describing, we had this tax um, tax reform law passed a couple of years ago, or almost a couple of years ago, and it established something called the Opportunity Zones, um, and, and investors are able to defer capital gains taxes by investing in mostly private equity types of funds um, to to defer ta- paying the government their tax, some of their taxes on those capital gains. And those investments in those funds are then invested into real estate or ventures, enterprises in um, in you know, mostly socioeconomically distressed communities. I yeah, mean, the, the communities were selected ahead of time. They had to apply and be approved by the state, et cetera. Right. And so that, I mean, with the sort of implicit intention that they will support these communities, you know, economic development, job creation, whatever, you know, your your social impact mission might be. But beyond the fact that you're supposed to invest in these communities there's no other type of guidance or there hasn't been really much guidance along that. So I just want to set the stage there and and I'll let you take it on from there if you have any clarifying understanding about the legislation and how you see these funds maybe popping up. Sure, sure. I mean it's a it's a great um it's a great initiative and there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm but also a lot of questions around what and how to do this well. Um, I think there's a fear that uh, the opportunity, so to speak, will be wasted if people want to do it right. 
Um, a couple of things. One other point about the opportunity zones, and that is in addition to being able to defer capital gains, there are incentives for what they call patient capital, where if you stay invested for five and up to 10 years, uh, after the 10-year mark, you can get you can ad- readjust the basis of your property. Um, so it's not just avoiding a percentage of t- capital gains. It allows you to simply almost like fast forward to 10 years in the future and say, okay, now we're going to start recording the value of this property for um, for tax purposes, which is a huge, huge incentive. Huge incentive, yeah. Yeah, huge. So, um, and one other piece, and that is, this: they are new regs. Uh, the Treasury Department is issuing um, clarifying guidance, and I think the most recent one just came out in April. So this is very much a work in progress, and, and folks are figuring it out. Um, and I also think, the clock is ticking. So that 10 yes. years, we're nearly two years into it, correct? Right, exactly. Because right. I think the property has to be divested by 2026 or 2027, where like that's when the, the tax benefits uh, the tax benefits go away. So um, in terms of thinking, like, how can um, – how can parties either take advantage of this or what does this mean for impact investing or how can parties uh, capitalize on this opportunity? So um, one thing that we've learned in our project with contracts on benefits, and that is that impact intentions are reflected in the contracts between parties. And those include the contracts when investors invest into funds and then when funds invest into their assets, whether that's real property or portfolio companies or otherwise. Um, so the first thing that I would say is that um, the intention to be uh, an opportunity fund, as they're being called, should be fully expressed in the agreements that the opportunity fund enters into, both with its investors and um, as it invests. So that's one. Um, and well, and, and let's let's pause there just for, to make sure that it, it's crystal clear. Um, so I have money that I'm looking to invest potentially into an opportunity zone fund, and I am, you know, but I care about the impact. Right. You're suggesting that I could actually require the fund through the legal agreement between the two parties to codify the impact that I'm hoping to see. Yes, and and there's uh, so. Uh, the agreement should reflect those impact intentions and not just in a, we hope to do something really good. Which you see a lot, um, yeah. Aspirational like, impact, if you will. <laughs> your money. Right. So in our paper, we make this distinction between aspirational impact, where we say, where funds identify, we hope to do this. We seek to improve the lives of these people. We hope to improve education outcomes. We hope to have cleaner water for X number of people. Um, and a hope is an aspiration. But... Um, operationalized impact is something that is a right. So um, those are clear statements that are enforceable. The viol- like the failure to comply with, which could result in a contract breach or some other kind of action. So I can give you a couple of examples. That'd be great. Thanks. Yeah. So um, if you're so focusing on the investor who wants to give their money to an opportunity fund. One thing that they might get as an enforceable contract right is not only audited financials um, on an annual basis or a quarterly basis, but maybe they can also get an impact report. Um, so a report that focuses on positive outcomes achieved by the fund's investments. And so an, an impact report is a way to... Um, bring transparency to the process. It informs the investor, but really importantly, it holds the fund accountable 
uh, to make progress on and achieve those aspirations. Right. Okay, so so in- it's implied that they're they're probably measuring and tracking something alongside the impact, not just sort of like making up numbers for the impact report. <laughs> right. 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 Um, and and the issue of like measurement and reporting and transparency on data is really an issue, uh, not only for opportunity funds, but just across impact investing. Sure. We've uh, talked about that on this show a good bit. Yeah. It's still a big challenge, but you're saying like we could codify that. We could have that expectation of the fund manager of an opportunity zone fund, and oh. therefore they should be actually monitoring and managing the impact of their portfolio. Absolutely. And that is not an, that's not an absurd thing for an investor to ask. We see that in other types of impact investing funds. Um, so that's one thing, um, positive information rights. Um, another thing would be um, when, the fund, when funds operate, they will often have an advisory committee or an investment committee, a group of individuals that have been tapped to help vet the potential investments. Um, and in an impact fund, that investment committee may also be an impact committee or may have impact advising processes. Like they may have a role where they're supposed to help assess the, the potential impact for an investment. So another thing that uh, could be included in an investor agreement with an opportunity fund would be an advisory board or an impact board or impact committee that helps assess the positive impact through investments and the opportunity zone. Um, and then generally, one another way to enhance accountability and enhance transparency is to have a number of the limited partners. That's often the, the legal role that the investors play. But essentially say, fund, you have to have a committee or advisory board that helps you assess the impact of your investments and we're going to put investors on that committee so it cannot just be like an inside job where everybody everybody is rubber stamping the impact or rubber stamping the potential investment. So that's another way to enhance it. But do these um, agreements um, indicate or sh- would you advise embedding in there any particular goals towards impact? Or is that something that should be determined by the committee? I'm just wondering how restrictive or how uh, aspirational these, these agreements should be. Yeah. So – this is something that we uh, – this is a conversation that we've been having, we meaning that my fellow researchers and I, for several years. And we were, I think, a little disappointed when we first started, when we first, like, imagined the, like, oh, when you open up a book for the first time. But when you <laughs> open up the contracts and we, like, peered inside, we expected there to be a provision that's like, we will improve the lives of 100 people. But I started thinking about this from a traditional fund perspective, and that is funds want to make money. But nowhere in an investment contract is there a guarantee unless it is a bond or um, a fixed, like a fixed income product that you will earn a certain amount of money. Right? So, yeah. If you invest in a fund, they're never like, we promise to give you at least this much money. Instead, they set up parameters for you to get X amount of money. But they never promise to give you X amount of money. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing is true in impact that – um, the goal is to meet or exceed those expectations. The contract should sh- should set up the process, but we have not seen explicit promises that this many people's lives will be improved, et cetera. Well, then it's, kind of, it's interesting because it, it's in contrast with philanthropy and grants that often sort of say you will serve 2,000 kids, right? And that's, right. that's part of the agreement. And that's usually part of the expectation. So, Anne, 
I want to take a short break. And if you can, we'd love to continue the conversation for a little bit after that, because we have a little bit more to dive into with Opportunity Zone. So hopefully you can stick with us for just a little bit longer after the break. I'd love to. Great. We're going to take a short break, but stick with us. We're going to continue the conversation with Ann Tucker from Georgia State University College of Law. We're talking about opportunity zones and how you can really think about, you know, codifying impact in your legal agreements if you want to, if you're able to invest in these funds. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And we are continuing our conversation for a little bit longer with Ann Tucker, who is a professor of law at the Georgia State University College of Law. We are talking about Opportunity Zone and Opportunity Zone funds, specifically around how you might be able to think about impact in legal agreements um, to you know, hopefully assure yourself that you're trying to achieve the impact that you hope and intend to have. Well, and that's what I liked when uh, earlier Ann talked about the um, – Instead of being restrictions, these legal agreements are part of your opportunity to be strategic and achieve your goals. And so thinking about that, them that way is something that really sort of furthers what you want to achieve becomes a very interesting approach. Right. And so, Cheryl, right before the um – Right before the break, you know, Anne, we were talking to you um, about – or Cheryl made the point about philanthropy and how oftentimes philanthropy requires you to, you know, try to achieve specific targets, and that's what you're reporting on. You're saying uh, right before the break that, you know, within more traditional contracts, especially around financial performance, you sort of say, like, this is what our target is, but it's – you don't necessarily have to enforce that necessarily. Like, if you don't reach it, you just didn't – you're not getting that money back. Right. And – one of the things that spurred this conversation with you was the Kresge Foundation, I think out of Detroit, Cheryl, I think yes, they're, they're out of Detroit. They had an RFP last summer where they said, you know, we're willing to invest in Opportunity Zone funds around the country. We'll play a catalytic role, maybe a first loss guarantee position in the fund, but we're going to vet those. And they had only, I think out of 120 or 140 applicants, only six really uh, met their criteria. And even of those six, when they said, we want to codify some of this impact in our LP agreements, some of some funds walked away. Yep. And so I thought that was interesting that you actually, we saw this in action from a, from a philanthropy. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So um, I, I thought that that was a, the Kresge Foundation's experience was really, really interesting. Um, the other thing, just one small note, and that is their their pool was narrowed so significantly because they were looking for funds that had specific experience in this type of investment, mm-hmm. and this sure. is just such a new field that there was not a deep enough pool. So um, I don't. So anyway, just like uh, a note about how to give listeners a sense of like this is brand new that even a national search produced 140, and not even all of them qualified. Um, so. Uh, on the term, uh, like with regards to walking away from those firm guarantees, um, one thing that I'll note that we often see, instead of a promise that we will achieve X, um, another way to create a very strong incentive that is 
similar in function, and that is to tie the general partner's compensation mm. to achieving impact or at least impact benchmarks. So traditionally in a fund, uh, a waterfall compensation structure is used where the investors get their money back and a return, and then some money goes to the fund manager, and thereafter they split the profits, usually in like an 80 to investors, 20% back to the fund manager split. And we've seen contracts that, that, that restrict the fund manager's carry or their share of profits to achieving impact, or they'll give them a lower overall carry, like reducing it from 20% maybe to 15 or 10%, with an additional amount that can be earned if the impact goals are achieved. And so what that's doing is saying, um, rather than saying, you investor can declare a contract breach that puts the fund in a position to have to like give you some like monetary damages if you don't achieve it, instead of, because that's what a contract right does. It allows somebody to say, oh, you haven't done your job and to take them to court. But in the other scenario, um, think about what's the manager's incentive. The manager's incentive is to make money for themselves, too. And so if they can only get that incentive if they also achieve the impact, rather than creating an enforceable right, it's creating an incentive in that contract um, to achieve the impact. So, Anne, if you think about the practicalities, you said we're still pretty early. We're still sort of building the ship as we were trying to sail it. Um, but yet the clock is ticking. What would you advise folks looking at Opportunity Zone funds, setting up their Investors? own funds, investing oh. into communities? What would you advise them on what to think through when they're creating these agreements or looking for investment opportunities? That's great. I mean, so I think every lawyer probably says this, but I'm going to say it slowly so everybody <laughs> can hear Read the contract, um, because it's not just a pitch from an investor about what could be done. You want to see how those aspirations and those intentions are recorded in the contract. And I would say if you get it in electronic format, search for the word impact or search for the word um, change. Try and find clear places in the agreement where uh, where the fund talks about what they will do to hold themselves accountable to that um, to that objective. And I'll say, if I have time, I can say one other thing you that have we haven't time. yet talked about in the contract. But the other um, another um, tool that uh, you can insert in the contract that can be really helpful is uh, managers. Once you give them your money, they have a lot of discretion to just invest it. So another way that we see impact being a concrete contract term is in restrictions on manager discretion. So essentially Mm -hmm. saying, does the fund restrict investment to opportunity zones? Does it restrict um, investment to certain opportunity zones? Um, And does it restrict investments to qualifying properties and qualifying businesses? Uh, That's another way to ensure that you're not only investing in a profitable enterprise, but also one that will serve this mission and and take advantage of opportunity zones. Makes me want to go read some of those contracts. (laughs) Contracts, exactly. Wow! If you've inspired someone to read, I was going to say, if you've inspired someone to read legal contracts, you have done something. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking of doing a search for impact. (laughs) (laughs) Control F. Got it. Seriously, like. 
Well, Word search is your friend. Exactly. Well, and thank you so much for sticking with us for a little bit longer. We've been speaking with Ann Tucker, professor of law and faculty director of the Legal Analytics and Innovation Initiative at Georgia State University College of Law. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.